and welcome to another episode of Rethinking Aloud, where today we're going to be talking about disagreeing well, about good disagreement. And with keyboard warriors all over social media, uh, with public, political discourse, increasingly aggressive and intemperate, uh, and talk of a cancel culture, uh, all these things seemingly features of life at the moment now. Um, It's an issue uh, which is not just out there, um, but also an issue within the church. Now, how do we disagree well. Uh, Within the church, we don't always handle our disagreements, whether about uh, human sexuality or women priests or a bunch of other stuff. We don't always handle those disagreements as well as we might. Uh, Meanwhile, we talk within the Church of England about mutual flourishing. So we're going to be talking about some of those things today. Uh, And hopefully, if we disagree, we'll do so well. Uh, And I'm joined for this podcast by Canon Karen Rooms, a Canon missioner at Leicester Cathedral uh, and also Women's Ministry Enabler, for the diocese, uh, by Miriam and Goy, a discipleship officer also at the cathedral and a spiritual director, and by Rob Miles, he's rector of the Cornerstone team in East Leicestershire. Uh, and we'll think specifically about church stuff in a bit, um, but just generally to kind of kick us off, I'd be interested in your general reflections um, because it seems a lot of people would suggest that as a society we disagree less well now than we might have done, say, 30 years ago. Uh, and I just wonder whether whether the three of you, whether you agree or disagree with that as a statement, uh, or is actually there not a need to agree or disagree um, on this one? Is it too simplistic a dichotomy? Um, so, yeah, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think you only need to have uh, watched the presidential debate in the United States to see how poor disagreement uh, can be a real energy drainer. Um, So I think I agree that we are losing the ability to disagree well, certainly in public space. But of course, the irony is that democracy, whatever we mean by that, assumes a divergence of views. So I I got around to thinking that English politeness maybe was quite a good thing after all, because at least we could disagree and be able to have enough space to hear what somebody else has got to say. Mm. My other thought on that is that we are uh, more sorted in society, not in terms of sorted, I've got my act together, but sorted like the sorting hat at Hogwarts, that we we are in... um, we take positions or we hold views and a collection of views that cluster around each other. And and I'm not sure we're in situations where we hear different views uh, as much as we might have done in the past. Mm. I think I don't disagree in in many ways, to be honest, on that one. Uh, although I think for me, there's a there's a slight caution that it's very easy to to look through kind of rose tinted spectacles at the good old days um, when we used to disagree wonderfully. And uh, I mean, Trump versus Biden was a complete car crash. But I guess uh, growing up in the 80s, uh, watching Margaret Thatcher and Arthur Scargill on TV, I'm not sure if they really disagreed very well either quite a lot of the time. So, I mean, there, there, there is that. Um, I, I think there is the, the, the human propensity to, to disagree, which is, which is a thing. And so there's always going to be a struggle to do that well, particularly when it's about things which people are passionate about. And uh, I'm sure we'll come to this in a bit, but the, the fact that we're so connected these days and just have the immediacy of response on social media and on the internet um, is also something which just sort of plays into lighting the fires of disagreement and, and, and fanning the flames. Well, 30 years ago, I was only a five-year-old child, so it might be hard for me to make a real comparison. 
but looking back, I'm wondering whether one of the realities is that 30 years ago, we had a more homogeneous makeup to our society, and there was more of an assumption of a unified narrative. Mm-hmm. And perhaps what we are finding now is the realization that there are many more competing narratives, but we haven't necessarily learned to hold them in creative tension. And I think there's also some somehow the fear of losing what we are familiar with. Certainly looking at my own journey from growing up in a white middle-class suburb in the Netherlands to moving abroad, being in an intercultural marriage and living in a very diverse city of Leicester, it has really opened up my world and I think made it much harder to sort of think in either or categories. So I've had to learn to integrate many more perspectives in my own life. That hasn't always been easy. I think in many ways, my circumstances of life have given me the privilege and opportunity to integrate other narratives into my own. But I can also understand the comfort of rather staying within our own safe bubbles. Well, thank you. There's some um, some stuff in, in what all three of you said there, which I think we're going to come back to or we're likely to land on again later in the conversation. Uh, I think Rob said something about the, the, the way that... Um, the way that we do communication these days gives that opportunity for immediacy of response. Uh, and I'm guessing that in some ways, social media really doesn't help us here. Uh, you know, I mean, looking back on the past, we know there's always been a, a self-proclaimed expert on everything, propping up the bar in the pub and regaling all, all around with wit, wisdom and opinions. Um, but back in those days, not even the whole pub was listening to that guy. Uh, but nowadays with social media, anyone can gain a large audience for what they say. Um, so the platforms for communication, um, I would suggest, seem to exacerbate the problem. Um, and any, any thoughts around that? I, mean, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think it's important to recognise that social media doesn't make us disagreeable. Um, but what it, what it can do, as you say there, is, is sometimes amplify the disagreement. Mm. There's a whole podcast you could do on the blessings and curses of social media. Yeah, you may mm. already have done that one, John. I'm not sure. Um, you know, clearly there are all kinds of advantages in the, in the way it enables us to engage, but you know, it, it does various things, doesn't it? One of them is it gives us an immediacy. And if there's something um, that I feel passionate about, it can be on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, and it can be around the world in next to no time. And you can respond if you want to without thinking about it. And you can interact with people that you don't have a relationship with. And all of those things, I think, can have an effect on whether we manage to disagree well. And it's very easy to, to suddenly have hundreds of people piling in on one person who said something, uh, maybe without thinking it through in the first place. So there's that. Um, there's the misunderstanding that comes with it. And I guess there's also the anonymity um, that, you know, even if I'm using my real name on social media, I'm still able to, to post things uh, and I'm not sitting in the same room or actually having a conversation with, with, with other people. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's a danger that we say things that perhaps we wouldn't say to people's faces. So, yeah, I think um, there. I, I don't uh, you to think that I'm, I'm suggesting it's a bad thing because there are many good aspects of it but the way that we use it can certainly have that kind of effect i think i think for me as well as those who are visibly participating in the conversation in social media uh, there are other players involved the cambridge analyticas of this world and the algorithms that have been programmed and that work with our views and the surveys that we've done online and then begin to direct content towards us and that what worries me about that is that that's unregulated. So in terms of election law, 
Um, if a, a political party wants to make a daily statement, um, they issue it to the traditional media. But online content isn't regulated in the same way. So, so there are other people manipulating our views that is less regulated. And I think we're not just on our own uh, on social media. There are other things at play here. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with Karen. And I don't know if you've seen the recent Netflix do- documentary, The Social Dilemma. I think it illustrated quite well some of these issues we've mentioned. Um, and earlier I also spoke about uh, safe bubbles. I think on social media we can easily become very stuck in our own echo chambers, uh, depending on who we follow or like. And I think that's not necessarily helping us to understand and engage with those different to us. And also because social media uses such binary language where you can either like opposed or you don't it makes it harder to recognize the complexity of life and the nuances of and paradoxes that life brings mm. yeah thank you um moving the conversation on a little bit um onto sort of more home territory perhaps uh, and trying to begin anchoring the conversation in a church context uh, and i just say at this point um we may name check occasionally one or two of the difficult controversial issues that we struggle with in church life what we're not going to do in this podcast is actually discuss the issues or attempt to solve them or, or, or theologize around them. Um, so we may name check things, but we're not actually going to dive, have a deep dive into them. But let's move the conversation into the church arena, because why does it actually, you know, why does it even matter how we disagree or how we're seen to disagree? Well, I think we have to first of all realize that disagreement in itself is an integral expression of the Christian experience. Because throughout history, there have been many divergent voices. I think the way we have gone about this disagreement has either led to deeper unity or fostered further division. So I think it's important for us to learn to disagree well, because at the heart of our faith is a calling to become agents of reconciliation. And our God is a God who embodies reconciliation and who is committed to mend broken relationships. I've just been uh, running a reconciliation reconciliation course with the cathedral and community of the tree of life and i remember one of the participants uh, who put it really well she said god is in the business of reconciling us and bringing all of us together as god's children so joining in this work is really vital i think at the same time we also live in a world that is all about mastery about becoming an expert and dominating others Uh, I mean, we spoke about social media, who has the most followers, who has the biggest church, the best looks, the most money. So I think communication, unfortunately, is often more about dominance rather than connection. I I believe that our Christian faith can offer an alternative to this narrative, where the focus is no longer on our independence, but our dependence on God, where we are enough in our weakness and in our need, in our failure in our humanity, really. So I guess I would say the integrity of the church will be determined by the way in which we disagree well or not. And it's probably important for us to be less concerned about being right and more concerned about building right relationships. I mean, I certainly agree with that um, emphasis on relationships. I mean, just thinking about this issue, I just think of Jesus in in John chapter 17, when he prays for all believers his prayer is that we would be united, that we would be one. And so I, I guess that says to us that we should be
be very cautious about um, both disagreeing and how we disagree, um, because it's it's something that matters to him. It matters because the church is the people of God. You know, Ephesians 2 um, talks about the church as a holy temple with Jesus himself as the cornerstone and how, the, how his death has made us one, broken down that dividing wall, um, that dividing wall of, of hostility. And it's also about our witness, isn't it? Because you know, people are supposed to be able to look at the church and see something good. When Jesus gave his disciples a commandment to love one another, he said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. And so it may not be that we can agree on everything, but how we go about disagreeing is clearly very important because the world is watching and it's supposed to be watching. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. It's, it's part of our witness. And as a Church of England, certainly we are still the national church and a public institution. And whether we like it or not, the media is interested um, and, and maybe has a vested interest in um, exaggerating our disagreement because it makes a good story. Um, but certainly we are under, under the microscope. But I guess for me, the imperative is to be Christ-like um, because we are part of the body of Christ. And Paul's analogy, you know, using that idea of the body for the followers of Jesus and for the church in Corinth, you know, they were they were falling out with each other. They disagreed about things, mm. and that's where that um, idea of the body was introduced by Paul uh, into our theology. But every part of the body is different. So, I mean, I'm always one for a U2 lyric: um, "We're one, but we're not the same." Um, and I think that's it, it's about it's about holding uh, and the blessing of difference because if we were all an eye or a foot or a heart, um, we wouldn't be a body. Thank you. I've got this horrible feeling now about a, a podcast which is going to descend as everyone tries to silently now work you two lyrics into the rest of the conversation. Um, I, I try. I can't see where. Would I've it help if we promise not to do that, John? <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah. um, moving moving it onwards um, I, I suppose yeah, being honest about it, thinking about church life it is all pretty easy uh, when we do agree uh, and I think about that verse in Psalm 133 about how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity like precious oil poured on the head, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe, um, ignore the weird imagery but that, that kind of, you know, how good how pleasant it is, but what should yeah, so I think several times people have said, yeah, we're not always going to agree. What should principled Christian disagreement look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question, I think. Um, and there's all kinds of things in there. But just, just to offer a couple of thoughts to kick this one off, um, I think it's about relationships um, and depth of relationships are key. When we disagree with someone, it's very different. Uh, having a, uh, finding yourself in disagreement with someone who you know than someone who is who is just distant and it's just an argument that's happening. Um, you know, we're people who don't live in a vacuum. We don't form our opinions in in a vacuum, and so we we need to get to know one another and we need to listen well first of all, um, so that we can understand where where we're coming from. And I think that makes a big difference. It, it, for one thing, it enables us to represent each other fairly. You know, one of the things which I really dislike is uh, when someone misrepresents my position, um, either accidentally or deliberately in order to win an argument. And so we need to be really careful not to do that. I think there's something about tone, um, how we speak, how quick we are to speak before listening. And uh, I guess humility is one of the key characteristics which the Bible suggests you know, we, we should base the way we act on. I just think of Paul in Philippians, 
encouraging them to be of the same mind and counting others more significant than themselves and offering Jesus as, a, as the example of that. So there's all of those kind of things. And I think at the same time, there's something about words. You know, we're, we're, we're people of words, um, sometimes called the people of the book. We believe in a God who has revealed himself in, in words. And so we need to be careful with our words and we need to be uh, we need to be ready to speak truth and, and ready to be honest about where we're coming from, um, even when that's sometimes difficult. We don't help one another by pretending that we agree when we don't. And so there's a whole bunch of things, I think, and that's just some of them that we, we have to try and hold together uh, if, we're, if we're going to be able to, to deal with our disagreements in a good way. Yes, I really agree with the focus on relationships and the kind of relationships that we are able to build together and also the importance of real listening. Um, I think when Christ prays for the oneness of the church, it's not necessarily about a church that only has one opinion, but that is committed to remain as one and build those life-giving relationships we're talking about. I heard uh, from someone a story about two bishops from different parts of the world who met at the Lambeth Conference some years ago, and they had different opinions on a lot of issues. And one afternoon they went on a walk together. But at the end of their walk, they hadn't managed to agree on the issues they were discussing. So then one bishop asked the other, so what shall we do now? And the other bishop said, let's carry on walking and talking. So I, I really think that's what it should look like. Let's carry on walking and talking. Mm, that's a nice story. I was um, I was thinking, uh, you know, what is it that makes it Christian disagreement? Um and so I think I went to Galatians chapter five in our scriptures and was thinking about uh, the lists that Paul offers. Um, so to situations where there's jealousy, enmity, strife, anger, quarrels, dissensions and factions. We all recognize that and our tendency to do that. Um, he, he, he talks about the fruit of the spirit. And I wonder if they're helpful as we think about how to disagree well. Yeah with love, mm. with joy, with peace, with patience. Can I actually listen to you or am I too too full of getting my arguments ready to, um, you know, am I patient? Am I gentle? Am I kind and generous? Is there some self-control and is there faithfulness in there? So I think for me, it's about applying those fruits of the spirit. And I also love the, um, the simple uh, guidance that the pastoral principles offer us that the Church of England have put together, um, and they uh, they help us to think about the way we disagree in terms of love. So listening, opening our hearts and minds without judgmentalism. That's the O. The V is value everyone's vulnerability and perspective, and the E express concern and empathy. So I rather like that um, L O V E um, mm -hmm. that comes with the pastoral principles. I think if I can throw one more thing in, into, into that one as well, there's something about recognising um, when our disagreement matters and that, uh, you know, it's, sometimes we can, we can have a, a disagreement and find that actually we can, we can talk it through and come to a place of agreement. Sometimes we find we don't get to that and, and we need to carry on walking together as, a, as in the, the story that, that, that Miriam was telling. Sometimes I guess we also just need to recognise that there's something here which really matters, and it's we can't just say it's okay to disagree, and that can often be, you know, the, the hard things to tease out. 
Now, you know, when, when is that the case and how do we handle it when it happens? And that's that's actually something I think um, I'd like to come back to later on that um, to, to explore that a little bit. But interesting in this sort of commonality between the answers that all three of you gave, if if there was a game of bingo being played here and someone had the words relationships and listening on their card, then they'd have ticked them off quite quickly. There was um, that certainly featured uh, heavily in all three of your answers. Um, there, there's a famous little saying that's often attributed to Richard Baxter, who was the 17th century vicar of Kettering. Um, and even if it wasn't his originally, um, he certainly quotes it in his book, The Reformed Pastor. Uh, and then he trots out this little dictum, in things essential unity, in things non-essential liberty, in all things charity. Love that last bit, in all things charity, which kind of says something about when we do disagree, doing so with grace. Um but how do we determine, you know, you often hear Christians talk about primary and secondary issues. How do we determine what is or isn't essential, um, you know, and, and what is kind of an area where there's latitude for disagreement? Yeah. How do we actually determine which is which? Well, I suppose my starting place, and it's only a starting place, is looking at, it's looking at our creeds, um, the Christian creeds, as we are looking for Christian orthodoxy. Um, they are historically our, our, a starting place, so that's one of the places I begin. Um, so an example might be other groups that ask to worship in our buildings. I go back to the creeds and say, do we have this in common? Um, that's that's my the beginning of the conversation for me. Yeah, and I, I guess I want to go even further back than that as well and, and say that in, in the end we need to be guided by what the Bible says. Um that God has given us what we need in his word. And of course, granted, some of our debates are around how to interpret what the Bible says. Um, and yet also recognizing that sometimes it's because we find things hard to understand. And sometimes it's because we find things that it says hard to accept as well. But I think, you know, the, the Bible does address exactly this question of, as, of what are the non-negotiable issues? What are the essentials of the Christian faith? And, uh, you know, we see it in the disagreements. I think some of those letters of the New Testament that we've already mentioned are particularly helpful with this because you've got someone like Paul, who was one of the first Christians who had to wrestle with with the question of, you know, what are the essentials? What are the things that we we can't just agree to disagree on as he, as he carried out his mission to the Gentiles, working out, you know, which are the things which are basic to the Christian faith and which are the things which actually were, were cultural and were in danger of being imported. And you see it in Galatians. And you see it in, um, in 1 Corinthians, you know, um, for example, where, where he writes about the first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and, and was buried and, and was raised from the dead. Uh, and there's a, a whole bunch of other things as we read through those letters, from worshipping idols to causing a brother or sister to stumble in their faith, um, behaving in a sexually immoral way, taking communion in an unworthy manner. And I think the starting point is, you know, what are the things that the Bible says really matter? And that those are the things that we need to be ready to, to bow the knee to what God has said on. I do think it's also important to just be aware of the fact that we're sometimes thinking of uh, Christianity uh, from, a, from the basis of uh, quite a, a narrow Western philosophical assumption, uh, where concepts start to define not just normed orthodoxy, but also assign worth to individuals. And I think this is perhaps the sin of Western Christianity that we have polluted aspects of global Christianity with. So somehow what we have said as essential seems to often be about dogma. 
Um, but if maybe if we were to be inspired by philosophical aspects from other parts of the world, there is often a greater room for nuance and paradox. So maybe the learning is also to allow different global perspectives to shape the way we think about ourselves and our faith and the way we share this faith with others. Uh, I think what ultimately is essential is the loving relationship again. We've mentioned it so often, where we love God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. And then maybe one of the things we could ask ourselves in all of this is whether we can love and respect those with whom we disagree. Mm. It can be quite hard, especially when we're coming at it from the perspective of those who are oppressed. So getting to a place where we do not want to publicly expose, humiliate or defeat our opponents requires a lot of work on ourselves and our relationship with God. And I think we can only really do this if, if we allow ourselves to continuously be changed by God. And it seems to me, I mean, you know, we've, we've only touched there on, you know, what things are there that are axiomatic to sort of orthodox historic Christianity and what things are secondary. And, you know, that we, we, we could go so much further with that and it could be a, a conversation in its own right. Um, yeah. But it seems to me, and I might be wrong, but that there are almost two kinds of dangers uh, that Christians can fall into. One is having a tendency to what you might call theological minimalism. Uh, the other, a tendency to theological separatism. Uh, uh, and in one of those, perhaps the bar for necess- necessary agreement is set so low that it becomes almost non-existent and the only important thing is being nice. Um, but at the other extreme, you get a kind of predisposition to hide behind the high barbed wire top walls of Christian tribal silos. Um, what are the dangers of each of those kind of quite polarised positions? Well, this might not be a direct answer to your question, John, but I think it it could be a question that still sounds very binary and that fits very well with the Western-centric view of the world. So um, I wonder whether a more helpful question could be how do we learn to live with paradox? Um, I think it's normal for us as human beings to identify with one side of any seeming contradiction. But at the same time, when I look at our faith, it's really full of paradoxes that we have to somehow learn to hold in tension. But just to give an example, Jesus being totally human and also totally divine. Um, so one thing doesn't always have to cancel out the other. Uh, there's a quote uh, by Richard Rohr that I read when preparing for this conversation, and I, I really liked that, where he said, uh, Jesus himself was crucified between a good thief and a bad thief hanging between heaven and earth, holding on to both his humanity and his divinity, a male body with a, fe- a feminine soul, yet he rejected neither side of these forces, but suffered them all and reconciled all things in himself. So I guess for me, I would say there's something about learning to live with the questions rather than always wanting to find the answers. Um, Maybe at times I believe it's too simple. I don't know. It's about finding ways to tend to the gray area where we don't have to resolve everything right away, but wrestle with the untidy questions, I think. And, and I can see, I mean, that, um, that actually Western Christian dogma, um, you know, sort of um, systematic theology from us at Western school can cope with those paradoxes when they are paradoxes of dogma 
So God is one, yet three persons. God sovereignly elects us, um, but we're responsible for our choice of him. Um, God is both imminent and transcendent. You know, all those kind of things it deals with well. It seems that the nuance is lost once you get beyond the field of dogma. I, I don't know. Is that an accurate? I, I'm just thinking, kind of trying to reflect back and think about what you just said there. I think you raise a really interesting point. Um, or is it that that we um, spent uh, sometimes decades trying to get those particular points of dogma sorted, um, mm. and we are de- and th- those were the issues of those days. And when it comes to the issues that we're having, that are, is is the responsibility of this generation to do the thinking on as a church. Um, it's just so much harder to actually reach that point of both and because we're still trying mm. to work it out. Mm. So, so maybe there's something about it being our issue that. That, that we're so close to that makes it hard to be able to hold the paradox. And interesting there, what you said, that something about pace. Um, mm. you, know, if, uh, you know, if previous generations had so much longer to reflect on these things and come to a mind, whereas now the pressure is always to, to kind of reach mm. the destination very quickly. I was going to say that I think it's an interesting point Miriam makes about needing to learn to live with the questions rather than always to find the answers, which relates to what you were just saying about pace there as well. And I guess one of the, the, the areas where we sometimes need wisdom is to work out when is that because actually the answer is not clear or maybe the answer doesn't even matter. And when is it learning to live with the questions, not because of those things, but just because we um, we can't see what the answer is at the moment. Um, you know, when is, when, is there is a, when is there a paradox and when is there a contradiction? And mm-hmm. I would, so I wouldn't want to too quickly, uh, you know, write off differing views as being paradoxes um, because that could take us to theological minimalism perhaps more than separatism um, if, if, if we're not careful i agree with you that both of them can be problems in different ways though of course and i also wonder whether there's something um from the experience of interfaith dialogue of the last 50 years um that us in the thinking that's been done there one of the things that i've discovered is it's important um to to recognize that we're not we don't all think or believe the same thing and we're not trying to all believe or think the same thing um, and that that's actually disrespectful to try and meld it all together and we make all sorts of assumptions that perhaps each religion has the same end or goals um but we don't all believe in the same god and our faiths are different and it's it's respectful to allow for that difference um and i i, I just wonder whether there's something there for us uh, helping us work out how to disagree well within one particular one faith. So thinking, um, you know, think about a, a story from the Gospels, well-known story, uh, Jesus in the temple uh, with a whip, kicking tables over. Um, or, or think elsewhere, go back to the Old Testament, um, think about prophets thundering denunciations against injustice uh, and, and against God's people for turning from God. Um, Paul in Galatians saying that he wishes that the Judaizing sect within the church would slip while performing circumcisions and chop the whole thing off. I mean, crikey, try saying that in a sermon and think what what kind of complaints you'd get. Um, but again, Paul telling the church to expel an immoral brother. So it's not always about being nice, is it? How do we tie that in with notions of good disagreement? Yesterday we looked at the, the parable of the wedding banquet and as we talked about it at uh, St Nicholas, uh, there was much outrage about the the man who turned up with the wrong clothes and uh, whether he'd refused the gift from the host or not made the changes he needed to, he was expelled. Um, and I noticed the the 
um, what, what that, expo- that exposed was our real discomfort with exclusion. Mm. Um, it really raises that for us. Um, but on the other hand, boundaries in our communities are really, really important. Boundaries on behavior that d- doesn't harm ourselves or others. And Jesus wasn't nice to everyone. He did plenty of rebuking and casting out, mm. especially where what was happening was damaging to people. Mm. Um, but what he did was always affirm the tiniest amount of faith or trust placed in mm. him or in his father. And he never crushed people. So again, it's the both and. How how can we uh, do that like Jesus did it? Mm. Um, you know, Paul in the same way is incensed that the rules were keeping um, the Gentiles out from belonging to the community of faith. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, you, I think we see consistently uh, with Jesus and um, with his apostles as well that he's not randomly angry, is he? Um, when, when he's angry, it's when his people, and especially the leaders of his people, uh, reject his ways. And as Karen was just saying, uh, particularly do that to exclude others. And there's a real difference in how Jesus uh, speaks to uh, people who have been excluded, who are outside the church, the, the outside God's people, marginalized in some way, and those who are particularly in leadership and in power. You know, he, he often picks on the Pharisees, as we know. He says, woe to you, Pharisees. And when he turns over the tables, as you mentioned, John, his fiercest words are often reserved for those who should know better because uh, they're they're part of of God's people, leaders of God's people, and they've got influence and status. Um, But at the same time, yeah, we need to recognize, don't we, that um, being angry with what is wrong is one of the characteristics of who God is. And uh, as we read through the Old Testament, we, we see God who is who is patient, hugely patient, um, but also who hates injustice. And, you know, we, the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21 was the story of God's patience with his people, um, sending his prophets and his servants to, to, to call them back and to warn them, but also the story of repeated rejection and lack of faith, you know, leading to to his anger and his judgment as well. So we, we have to hold both of those two things as part of God's character, I think. Yes, I, I agree with all of that. And I was laughing a bit, bit when I read about being or heard about being nice, because, again, I think that can also be quite a British thing. Um, from my perspective as a Dutch person, um, sometimes British people can be quite preoccupied with being nice. <laughs> and as someone being known for her directness, I'm not sure that being nice is always honoring the other and helping us move together to greater maturity. Um, and then looking at the specific example you gave of Jesus uh, taking a whip and casting the money changes um, away, there was a real concern, I think, for social justice there, as the place where the traders were doing their business was supposed to be a place of inclusion for the Gentiles. And instead, somehow they managed to develop systemic ba- barriers and a culture of exclusion and oppression. So in some ways, what Jesus is doing is saying that actually when it comes to the essentials, there is no negotiation. Uh, The essential being the flourishing of human life and the opportunity for every human life to engage with God in worship and service without being restricted by objectifying structures. And I guess it's not just the essential, you know, what the essentials are. It's who's saying them, isn't it? You know, just Mm. extending some of that, you know. If um if Richard Dawkins expresses that he doesn't believe in the resurrection, you know, or or someone who who is um of a different religion 
then uh, I'm not going to be offended by that or surprised by that. Why, why would they mm. um, say anything different? But if I hear, you know, a vicar or a bishop questioning the, the resurrection of Jesus or the virgin birth or whatever, then that's a real problem because, um, you, know, the, you know, they've got a responsibility to teach the faith and to, to lead people to Jesus. And so there's that context as well. Mm, yeah. So does, uh, question here, does disagreeing well implicitly mean that we're always legitimizing the other opinion? You know, that it's effectively saying it's fine to disagree on this. You know, different Christians can have different views on this matter, and that's cool. Or can we disagree well without validating the legitimacy of the other viewpoint? Yeah, uh, that's not an easy one. I think maybe as Christians, we need to remember that ideals and concepts are a concern for us as people. But in God's eyes, I suspect that people are more of a priority than ideals. Uh, because looking at the church, really, the church has historically been quite concerned with the right doctrine. But in its practice, what was not just condoning, but sometimes even celebrating uh, practices such as, for instance, slavery. So there is then a real tension between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Mm -hmm. So personally, I would say that lifestyle and practice are more, much more important than believing dogmatic or moral positions to be true or false. And I was reminded when I was reading a book about that uh, by something St. Francis said to his first friars, uh, you only know as much as you do. So I think the problem maybe is that within the church, we are not always taught a spirituality of change and growth. Yeah, for me, um, so I've tried to think myself into into something that I do hold a strong opinion of. So if I think about myself and, and my role as women's ministry enabler in the diocese, um, so that the invitation is for me to say I, I don't accept the legitimacy of the, your view, so the view, for example, that women um, should shouldn't be in leadership, but I do accept that you're entitled to hold your view, mm. and that's the nuance for me. And certainly, even you know, if if we refer to the five guiding principles, that that's what they try to do. They they acknowledge that that we have a right uh, that is being protected by by the church to hold a different view. Um, but I, but it doesn't mean that I, that I am legitimising that other view, and I think that's that's how it works for me. And I was trying, I was trying to do similar and to think myself into into situations a bit a bit like you. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what is it that bestows the entitlement? So, so mm. if we say no, that's not a legitimate understanding. It mm. doesn't work. I don't believe that's right. What then gives the entitlement for the other person? from our perspective to be in inverted commas wrong but still to be propounding that viewpoint uh, I, and I don't know the answer to this I'm genuinely asking well I suppose in that case you know one of my answers would be in the end we dis we we interpret scripture differently um so we so we reach our conclude but it doesn't mean to say that we haven't reached our conclusions with integrity um and you know we go back to and we have all of these other things in common and therefore i'm not going to i'm not going to let this define the way i relate to you so in a sense almost sort of falling back on the creed or or similar and our commitment to be anglicans i think there's there's something here about the commitment to our tradition and to say i want to be in the same church as you well yeah i mean i think that it 
I think in many ways we're at the, the, the nub of the question with this one. I think it's a really tricky question to answer mm. um, because I think there is sometimes a sense in which by you know, inverted commas disagreeing well and perhaps still haven't teased out exactly what that looks like, that it, that, that appears to, to validate the, uh, the other viewpoint. And while there, while there are areas where, you know, I, I might hold fairly passionate views, but at the same time, I can, I can recognize that others hold different views. Um, you know, where are the boundaries to that? Where do we have to say, look, that's just not a Christian viewpoint or that's just not an Anglican viewpoint. Um, and so actually it's a, you know, a, a turning over the tables in the temple sort of um, response rather than a, we look, we find this really hurtful, but we're going to walk together. And it's, it's, it's really tricky. Um, and I suppose it's a, I don't have answers to those and we haven't got time to get into the, into the specific issues, but in terms of how comfortable we feel with disagreeing, uh, I, I come back to the, the, the thing in the gospels about Jesus coming full of grace and truth. And that's a, a polarization that as Christians, we sometimes tend to, you know, to, to, to one of those poles or the other. Mm. So a, a tendency sometimes to be so concerned about the truth and getting things right that we can be ungracious to one another and we can end up hard and unloving. And that's, that's sometimes an accusation that is rightly put towards my part of the church, I guess the more evangelical end of the spectrum. And yet recognizing there's an opposite problem of being so concerned about how nice we can be to one another uh, that we can end up without being distinctive um, and saying something which is specifically Christian and different to what the world around us might say. So I don't know if I'm answering your question with that or not, John, but I, yeah, I think this is really where the rubber hits the road. And, and again, going back to what Miriam said a moment ago about not being quick to come to answers and, and recognizing where the church has, has come to, to something which has been held over long centuries, you know, being very cautious if we've got questions about, about it. Uh, yeah, and I think that's also sometimes the reality of life and getting stuck in with the reality of life because I remember um, uh, years ago when I came to London to work in a youth centre with disadvantaged young people. Um, I I was quite clear of my views and where I came from, but actually hanging out with people other, other than myself, I, I couldn't just come with my own morality and, and sense of privilege and project it on others. So I had to really get to know those people and their stories and somehow experience that God was already there with them and with us all in the midst of our, our broken and wounded lives. And that was really a shift for me from being so sh sure of my views to actually being there with real people and real questions. And just sort of following on from that, taking a different direction, I'm, I'm aware, Miriam, that you've been leading a course or facilitating a, facilitating a course that's around this whole area of reconciliation. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how far you are into that course or anything, but were there any practical tips or pointers or guidance uh, that have come out of that that might be helpful for us to hear in this kind of disagreeing well kind of conversational context? Yes. Uh, well, initially, actually, during the course, some people struggled a bit with the fact that we weren't just going to go straight into the contentious issues. <laughs> but instead, we decided to take a step back and focus on three specific habits that we can all learn and grow into and will then hopefully change the way we enter into those difficult conversations or disagreements. So the first habit we focused on was being curious, which is all about how do we actually listen to others and their stories and see the world through their eyes? How do we understand and value the other and 
can we also somehow see the limit of our own stories? So, for instance, we encourage people maybe to go to places outside their comfort zone, like a cafe in a different part of town. Or we spoke about social media. Why not look at who you follow and, and just follow some people with different views than your own? So that was being curious. And then we moved on to the second habit of being present. And I think that's really about having the courage to bring our whole unique selves to our encounters, which means both our vulnerabilities and insecurities as well as our convictions and strengths. And hopefully we will then be able to find a foundation of trust, really, so we can see where we actually are connected and not just uh, disagree. So one of the questions, for instance, we really wrestled with as a group was, what are the groups of people we avoid in our lives and why do we do that? And then um, finally, we worked on the third and last habit of reimagining. So be curious, be present, and then reimagine. And that's sort of where we talked about how do we let God take over to stretch our understanding, uh, to see what is possible and to find hope and opportunities in the places where we really want to see that change, um, offering things back to God. I think the, the language of habit actually was really helpful uh, because it just shows that it's actually something that takes practice and a commitment and a level also of humility and courage. Um, so it's something we really, we don't just do overnight, um, but we have to, to work on these skills to build these healthy and life-affirming relationships with, with each other, really. I'm very conscious that, you know, we're, we're, we're right towards the end of this conversation now, and, and maybe this was inevitable, but I feel that like I'm going away with more questions in my mind <laughs> than I started off, and I've been the person posing the questions. Um, but, and particularly, I think, about that kind of that last thing that we were talking about, about um, how do we disagree well without legitimising the other opinion, but still doing it in a gracious, Christ-like manner. And I think that's the one um, that I wrestle with, partly because I'm a people person and I actually like people and I really like a lot of people with whom I fundamentally disagree mm. within the church. And it's how you know how you bring that kind of part of who you are as a person and how you respond to other people who may disagree um, you know, quite strongly with you on, on a theological point, but you actually connect as people and really like each other. And there's just so much that kind of feeds into that, that thing about uh, how do we disagree well, graciously, lovingly, in a Christ-like manner, um, but still perhaps sometimes say, but I think you're actually wrong on this. Um, and, and, and I guess that's one which as a church we continue to walk with and wrestle with and maybe uh, Miriam's story from early on about walking alongside um, is, is a helpful takeaway thing from all of that. Um, and moving towards the end of our conversation uh, and, and this is more perhaps going back to where we started and tied in with the, the general zeitgeist uh, which of course affects the church. You know, we don't exist in a hermetically sealed bubble. Um, but do you think that cancel culture um, which the singer Nick Cave, obviously, who's not a Christian, recently described as the antithesis of mercy. Uh, and I know Giles Fraser has a lot to say about its lack of a redemptive aspect. Um, so do we think that sort of cancel culture and, that, and, and a general sort of shouty, culturally maintained silencing of some viewpoints means that we find it much harder to get to ever get beyond trite slogans and posturing and to discuss some of the nuance 
um, that we've we've alluded to and some of the paradox and to explore things in depth. Um, you know, for instance, I mean, say, say imagine that you're avowedly anti-racist, um, committed to an understanding of the image of God in all people. Uh, you're aware of your own unfair privilege. Uh, you want to learn more about how you can combat systemic racism. You'd be very happy to take a knee. But maybe in the back of your mind, you have some misgivings about critical race theory uh, or cultural Marxism. Are you likely to think, I daren't raise those misgivings publicly in case I get shouted down and demonized by other people who aren't properly listening to what I'm trying to work through? So I guess what I'm saying is, uh, do, how do we create safe spaces that are so brave that they're brave enough spaces to enable deep listening, deep learning, and really honest dialogue, which involves risk-taking, uh, particularly the risk of being misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question to, to, to hit us with towards the end of the podcast, John. Um, and it, partly because it, this is not theoretical stuff, is it? I mean, this is church life. It's the reality of being part of God's people, um, among others who hold different views and and sometimes you know we hold different views very very strongly within the same congregation um i think you said something really important there about mercy which we haven't really talked about and uh, what a significant concept that is for the christian faith and how that should inform how we treat one another um i guess two two things i'd want to say on this would be about being welcoming and being clear about what we stand for um, I think, you know, we, we need the churches to be places, our churches to be places of welcome for people, even where we disagree. Jesus went out of his way to meet with those who are on the outside and, and who are marginalized. He, he welcomed sinners, praise the Lord. He welcomes people like me. And so, you know, we need to be honest in our churches about who we are. We're a, we're a bunch of forgiven sinners who've been rescued and, and welcomed by a God who loved us enough to die for us. Um, and our churches need to be a place where people feel they can come you know, even if they disagree with everything I might say from the pulpit or whatever it is. Um, at the same time, we, we need to be we need to give people something to believe in. People need to know who Jesus is and, and, and what the church stands for. So welcome isn't just about being nice in a kind of lowest common denominator kind of way, never saying anything which might offend anybody. Um, hopefully we don't offend people all the time, or at least not by who we are. But it's it's that thing again about speaking and listening with both grace and truth, which again, and I'm sorry to be playing bingo, in lots of ways comes back to relationships, doesn't it? Because if we don't have those relationships, then we just end up as different people throwing words at each other and it, and it can get very uncomfortable. Um, I don't know if that's answering the question or not, but there, there are some maybe, maybe some principles in there. I think one of the ways that I think about that question, you know, how do we create safe spaces that enable us to listen and learn and have some honest dialogue? Um, I bring to it um, my experience of community organising, which is where in different civil society institutions uh, work together to uh, address issues in their in their communities. Um, so when we had uh, we were running an action towards the police and crime commissioner elections in the city. Um, we were collecting stories of people's experience from our different member institutions. So the LGBT uh, centre was collecting stories about hate crime. The black churches uh, contributed stories about police harassment, particularly of young men. Um, the large evangelical church in the city centre um, wanted to uh, had stories of students um, and their vulnerability um, 
partaking in the nighttime economy. There were different issues, but and very, very different constituencies. But by by addressing what mattered to them and finding what out they had in common enabled all sorts of other conversations and enabled groups that you would never think would work together to work together to get some some change in the city and learning to trust one another and then to have the honest dialogue about difference and to be curious with one another. So somehow having having something that we're working on um, and f- can find in common actually creates the space for the learning and the listening and the dialogue that comes later. Mm. And so relationship almost creates yeah. the possibility of bravery. Absolutely. Mm. So Miriam? Yes, just, just shortly on your uh, example of being anti-racist, on anti-racist um, I think we have to be cautious to not make the story about us and be so preoccupied by our own fragility that we are, unab- that we are then unable to stand up for justice and equity. And I think actually the the three habits I spoke about uh, just this, a bit earlier, uh, being curious, being present and reimagining can actually help us to create these brave spaces to do that. Mm. Um, and a concept that really helped me uh, personally, um, which is a bit from a spiritual direction perspective, is choosing the intention of equanimity. Um, I think the dic- dictionary defines it as calmness and composure, especially in a difficult situation. So rather than always trying to explain away this discomfort or somehow numb ourselves, equanimity is about leaning into the discomfort so that we can learn from it, from how uh, going in the, in the eye of the storm and still sort of observing all that is happening around you. I think this is especially important for us in positions of privilege and power because going into difficult conversations for some can be more of a choice, while those on the receiving end of oppression never have this choice, whether to engage with an issue or not. It's there all the time. So really, equanimity is about then going down under and not avoiding, um, but being present to to all that is. Um, It's probably easier said than done, to be honest. (laughs) I think we've all lost our cool in the heat of an argument or emotionally checked out of an an uncomfortable situation. So again, I think that's where we need God, isn't it? The changes from the inside to be able to do this. And I guess there are tools around. Uh, I'm thinking of something called the welcoming prayer, for instance, where you can try and achieve that kind of posture. Interesting, kind of, yeah, when you look at the, um, perhaps the way in which some conversations are culturally maintained uh, and, mm. and, and wondering whether can we in the church actually broaden um, the, the kind of the playing field on which the conversation can happen um, if the ultimate intention is bringing people together, not pushing people apart. Um, but mm. yeah, so much that's interesting to think about in terms of um, how conversations are conducted in, in, in wider society today. Mm. Um, well, we've reached the end of our podcast today uh, a massive thank you to karen to rob and miriam uh, for joining me and to all of you who've tuned in uh, and as ever uh, we hope that this conversation gives birth to other conversations uh, in your churches fresh expressions and small groups i think certainly for those of us who've been uh, involved in the podcast conversation we're probably thinking my gosh you know i need another three or four hours and we'd be beginning to get somewhere uh, so i do hope uh, you'll be able to carry on talking in those groups that you find yourself in uh, as you think through what good disagreement looks like 
at how big or how small is the container within which we disagree. How can difficult conversations be Christ-like and seasoned with grace? Uh, This has been Rethinking Aloud, podcasting from the Diocese of Leicester. And until next time, stay safe and be best.